God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear. For perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Once again, his company failed him. He had recruited this young lady. He had brought her on his team. He had mentored her for several years. He knew that someday she could be the CEO of the company. Well, it blew him away when the senior leadership also saw her potential and put her in a very high position of responsibility, a position that he wanted. And instead of going to the senior leadership and talking through it, he decided that he was gonna start sabotaging the senior leadership. One thing led to another, and one day he was met at the front desk by the HR rep as well as a security guard. He had to turn in all of his effects from the company, and he was given notice that he is being sued for the damage he had done to the company. He refused to take responsibility for what happened. In fact, he would blame the senior leadership. Blame versus responsibility. Well, as the captain of the guard force in a Nazi concentration camp, he was responsible for thousands of Jewish deaths, deaths of Jewish men, women, and children. So after the war, he stood trial at the Nuremberg War Trials, trials and, and he, he took the claim that all of his predecessors had taken before him. It wasn't my fault. I was only following the orders of my superiors. I can claim no responsibility. Blame versus responsibility. I mean, it's been going on since the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, God tells Adam and Eve, he says, you guys can have your free reign of this garden, but you can't eat from this tree. And we know what happens. Eve is tempted by Satan. She takes the fruit of the tree. She eats, she passes it to Adam, who's right there with her. And all hell breaks loose on earth because of that. That's the fall of humankind. And so God goes looking for him. He knew where they were, but they were in hiding. God goes looking for him. He says, Adam, what up? And Adam says, it was her fault. And then Eve said, it wasn't my fault. It, it, Satan, he tempted me. It's the blame game. You know, it seems that we have a problem within our society right now, a problem within our culture. And that problem is that we refuse overall to take responsibility specifically for our mistakes. In fact, if you are uh, caught in a lie or caught in some form of sin, what you need to do is you, you put together some form of crazy blame game scenario and you can get a lot of likes and a lot of applause for that. Well, God says we should be doing something different, that we need to own our stuff. 
such as what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Intimacy with God requires ownership of our sin. Intimacy with God, that, that tight fellowship with God, requires ownership of our sin, of our disobedience in life. We don't play the blame game. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week two of our series, our 13-week series on the book of 1 John. It's called Go in Love, Be a Light. And in this series, we're pulling apart the book of 1 John. Pastor Bob kicked it off last week with an incredible scene setter for the entire, entire book of 1 John, for the entire series. This week, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at six powerful verses. And just let me revisit some of the things Pastor Bob talked about in the scene setter for those who weren't here Last week, As I said, if you haven't seen Pastor Bob's sermon, you need to go back and see it so you have a firm foundation for our series. So we go back 2,000 years ago. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, writes this letter about five plus decades after Jesus' resurrection. And really what he's trying to do is he's trying to push hard against false teachers. Uh, false teachers have said, if I can summarize, two main things. Thing number one is that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah and, and that it, he was not God in the flesh. And thing number two was that there's really no such thing as sin. So John pushes back hard on these heretics, on these false teachers. Well, last week, Pastor Bob hit the first four lines of this powerful letter. The first 10 lines are so important in this letter. And he, he hit on the point of fellowship and joy, that through Jesus, we have an incredible fellowship with God. And it's a, simply an amazing thing that we get that intimacy with the creator of heaven and earth. And then he talked about joy, that we can have this joy that transcends all understanding, especially when we're going through the most difficult times in our lives. John breaks this letter up into two places, that, that God is light and that God is love. Today, we're gonna to be hitting on that thing called God is light. In fact, we're gonna be looking at what it means to walk in the light versus walking in the darkness. And so before we get started and I pull all six of these verses apart, verse by verse, what I want you to do is just listen to these powerful words of these six verses. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, well, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Six powerful verses. And what we're going to see today is that verses 5, 7, and 9 are very, very positive verses. We're also going to see that verses 6, 8, and 10 are the claims of the heretics. They're the negative verses. They're the false teachings. And John pushes up 
against that. Guys, I got to own this. This is a very difficult teaching because what we're talking about is a, a topic that a lot of pastors, we don't really take a lot of joy in talking about, and it's sin, and we have to talk about it. And that's what John is going to hone in on here. So we're going to be dealing with that. That's the first thing that's challenging. Second thing is uh, we had an outbreak of COVID with our volunteers and with our staff and a couple of our pastors. So we made the very difficult decision to go strictly online this weekend. It was simply out of necessity. And so thank you for your grace on that. It's, I get to preach to a camera and to an empty auditorium, but that's okay because you're here with us in spirit. So thank you for being here. So as we pull this apart, let's look at this. Let's go through 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. A shout out to the theologians I leaned into, Dr. Chuck Swindoll and Dr. Constantine Campbell. With that, remember our main idea. Intimacy with God requires ownership of our sin. You guys ready to go? All right. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. Okay, press pause. John had spent three years walking the dirt with Jesus. And Jesus consistently shared that God is light, that God is perfect. And so he says, this is the message we have heard from him. You know, I believe in my heart that the first 10 lines of any book are the most important lines of a book. It'll make you either grab the book and say, I want to read more or go snoozer and throw it away. One book that I've always had a hard time reading, in fact, I got to admit, I, 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 I want to consume copious amounts of cough syrup when I read this book so I can understand it. It's, the, it's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. I've read it a few times, and what I want to do is just read a few of the lines. Remember, the 10 lines are very, very important. The first few lines of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, I'm going to use my narrator's voice to not be confused with my preacher's voice. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the riverbank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversation? And it's true. What's the use of a book without pictures or conversation? Well, you guys know my love of the Bible. And you know, too, that there aren't any pictures in the Bible. But here's the beauty about the Bible. We have word pictures and we have amazing conversations. Just go back to the first 10 lines of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And then the next nine lines just show up a bunch of different word pictures about God creating. It's, it's amazing. Or if you fast forward to the gospel of John, those first 10 lines, just look at the first couple of lines. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's a word picture of Jesus. And then if you fast forward just a couple more lines, uh, Jesus, the light Jesus shines in the darkness, but darkness has not understood it. Word pictures. And so the first 10 lines of the book of John, are, 1 John, are so important. That's why Pastor Bob and I are really dialing in last week and this week on these first 10 lines. And we find out from the gate, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And that should give us hope because what it means that God is light, that means that he's, he's holy, he's perfect, he is sinless. So that when we go through a very, very difficult time, we can go to a perfect God, not a God with faults. A God who loves you and me and wants us to come to him. Especially during times of darkness in our lives, times of darkness that we may cause. 
And the beauty about this is that, is that Jesus is the personification of that light. Jesus is the personification of that light. Jesus is God with skin, which is what the false teacher said is not true. And, and Jesus is light with skin. Because God is light. He can't tolerate sin. He can't tolerate darkness. As I said, John divides this letter up into two areas. God is light and God is love. And what we want to hang on to is that God is love. And we can think that God just kind of looks at sin and winks at it and calls it grace. But he can't tolerate sin. He does not want us to be a bunch of free-range chickens running around in the barnyard called life. So he gives us parameters to live by. He gives us his son, Jesus, so that we have a way to deal, so that we are saved with, uh, from the darkness, but also have a way to deal with the darkness. He gives us light to walk in. We're going to talk about what that means in a few minutes. Okay, so first, verses 5, 7, and 9, those are really powerful, positive verses. Verses 6, 8, and 10 are the claims of the heretics. Look at the first claim of the heretic. Let's look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship, underline, circle that word, fellowship. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So if we claim to have fellowship, that fellowship is what Pastor Bob talked about last week. It's called koinonia. Koinonia just means it's more than having a cup of coffee with someone. It's more than hanging out with someone. It connotes a very tight intimacy, emotionally and spiritually. And in a marriage covenant, it connotes physical intimacy. And so... Light involves that intimacy with God. So if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness. Well, let's talk about darkness. Darkness is sin. And sin, simply speaking, is selfishness. It's selfishness. It's being self-centered. You know, we're in the, the um, mid-portion of our 21 days of, of prayer and fasting. We do it every year. And it's a really exciting time for us individually, but collectively as a church. And we've been hanging our hat on John, John 3, verse 30. It's, it's a very simple verse, and it says this. He must increase, I must decrease. That's all it is. God bigger, me smaller. And what happens with sin is we flip it on its head because it's about self-centeredness, right? It's me bigger, God smaller. I must increase, he must decrease. So the issue is darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And here's the issue is you can't have intimacy with Christ while walking in the darkness. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about this close relationship. You can't have intimacy with Christ and walk in the darkness. It's spiritual adultery. It's like me sleeping around on my spouse. Last I heard, Linda would have a hard time with that. So darkness, sin, begins with a flirt. A flirt in your mind or whatever. We flirt with the darkness. Then we start dancing with the darkness, then we start dating the darkness, and then we're intimate with the darkness. Do you have that koinonia, that intimacy with Christ, or do you have it with the darkness? Because you can't have both. You can't have that intimacy. We are created to have, uh, have intimacy with God from the depths of our being, and it's such an amazing thing, but darkness can suck even the best people into it and affect our lives. 
So walk, this idea of walk, it's a metaphor that, that all of, of John's audience would understand. Uh, walk in darkness is a metaphor for life. It means walking in sin. So what I want to do is I want to press pause on 1 John, and I want to go to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth uh, book in the New Testament, John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Jesus is having a conversation and has had a conversation with a key leader of the religious, uh, of the, the religious people, of the Jewish religion. His name is Nicodemus. And he says these words. Remember, we're talking word pictures. We're talking uh, walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. John 3, verses 19 through 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. That means they walk in the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So every morning when we wake up, we are going to make choices. We have a chance to make choices. And the main choice is do we walk in the light or do we walk in the darkness? And I have always said that each one of us, when we choose to walk in the darkness through those choices, we are one, two, or three bad choices and relationships from having an ethical or a moral failure. Don't believe me, just if you would Google on your own, don't do it now, but if you would Google on your own something like celebrity pastors or, or Christian celebrities who have failed or who have fallen, and you're going to get a whole a whole slew of names. You'll see names like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. You're going to see Mark Driscoll on there, Bill Hybels, uh, Perry Noble, Jimmy Swaggart. It, it goes on and on and on. And here's the thing. All of them at one point were walking very closely with Jesus. And then they started flirting with the dark. Then they started dancing in the dark and then dating the dark and then they had intimacy with the darkness. Now, some of them have repented, and they've been restored, and that's a good thing. Some of them, it's a different story. And I don't want to be judgmental towards them, because as I said, you and I, all of us, are one, two, or three bad decisions and relationships away from having that ethical or moral failure. So verse 6, six says that it's impossible to have intimacy with God if we're dating the darkness. And remember that God is love and he wants to save sinners and that we need each other to help us out. Enter verse seven, a very positive verse. But if we walk in the light, underline that phrase, walk in the light, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. There's that word, that koinonia again, that fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So let's talk about what it means to walk in the light. Walking in the light is really about doing and being. Doing and being. So let's talk about doing. The doing part is just living out what Jesus said were the two greatest commandments. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving each other. Loving well. It's all about Jesus. It's all about love. He gives us the example for that. So it's doing. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's also about being. It's about location. Walk in the light. You see, the darkness can be places that tempt us. And so we need to stay away from those, those places. We need to set up healthy boundaries between us and people who can suck us in to activity that is sin. That leads us to stumble. So the beautiful thing is, is that if, if we walk in the light, it's not about being perfect because we simply 
can't be perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about persistence. It's not about perfection. We can't be perfect. It's about persistence. Doing our best to stay in the light. We're going to talk about that towards the end of today's teaching. We, we love God. We love others. And we stay in the light. So verse 7 reminds us that Christ cleanses us from our sin. But, but we know that we can't do this on, on, alone. This whole walk as a Christ follower, it's a team sport. So he talks about fellowship, that we have fellowship with one another, that each, each of us, we need people in our lives, Christ followers who can tell us that we have bad breath, our, 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 a booger hanging out of our nose, that our feet stink, that we're messing up, as well as saying, hey, you're doing great, let's do this together, we can do this. They encourage us and they admonish us too. So back to this idea of location, it means to live in God's presence, to walk in the light rather than stumble in the dark, to have our most intimate relationships be with Christ followers. Because at that spiritual level, you need someone in your life to help you and to do life with. It's, it, it, it means that our thinking and behavior are conformed or transformed to that of Christ. And when we dance in the dark, we can be sucked into that black hole of habitual sin. So now we got to hit the negative. And the negative is verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we claim to be without sin, what uh, John is writing about here is sin nature. That we're all born with sin in, in us, with sin nature in us. Uh, David would write that I, I you know, from, from the, the time I was born or to the time I was conceived, I was steeped in sin. And he wasn't talking that his mom and dad had had an affair or something like that. He's saying from the time I was born, I've been a sinner in need of grace. The Apostle Paul would actually write that no one is righteous, not even one, in Romans chapter 3. He summarizes a bunch of biblical passages that simply say that we have sin in our lives. And if we say we don't, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we're all born with this sin nature. And if you don't believe me, take a toddler, actually take a, a beautiful baby right out of mama's womb. And, and uh, she is, is raised in a perfect environment. And then when she's about three or four, uh, you give her two cookies and say, you can eat one. I'm going to walk out of the room. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. And she chows down on one. And when you come back 20 minutes later, she's already eaten the other one because she's human and because she also has that sin nature. None of us are born innocent. And here's the thing, that sin nature then leads to sinful activities. And that's what verse 10 is about. So for those of you who are OCD, freak not. We're gonna come back to verse nine. But what I wanna do is I wanna hit verse 10 because verse eight and verse 10 go, go arm in arm and hand in hand. So let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar, ouch, and his word has no place in our lives. So verse eight says, listen, we have sin nature. We're born with this. We have the proclivity to do stupid stuff. And then verse 10 says that it's natural for us to also sin. But the problem is, is if, if we say we don't sin, we're making God out to be a liar, meaning that everything God says in his word about sin is actually wrong. Now, remember our main thought, intimacy with God requires ownership of our sin. We're talking about intimacy, and you can see why this is such a difficult teaching, because it's pretty, pretty negative. 
Well, intimacy with God requires ownership of, this, of sin. We don't play the blame game. Back in 1998, I was part of an intelligence cell that was really focusing on bringing about uh, uh, Bosnia's, uh, I don't know, some healing in Bosnia. Uh, there was a, a huge civil war there from uh, just before that for about five and a half years, but, uh, from 90 to, to 1995, 96. And during the civil war, some horrific things happened. Our job in this intelligence cell was to uh, provide information and intelligence to decision makers as we tried to have some healing in the country. But on top of that, one of our, our, our tasks was to analyze and gather as much information we could to find war criminals, persons indicted for war crimes, to bring them to justice so we could get that information to the, the door kickers and the shooters on the ground to arrest these guys. And there were bad guys. So in the Bosnian conflict, there are three main sides. You had the Bosnian Muslims, Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, Croatians. And all three sides committed atrocities, but the Bosnian Serbs, with all the evidence, were f by far the worst. Couple examples. A little town called Srebrenica, uh, the, 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 the head Bosnian Serb general, Radko Mladic, uh, ordered the execution of all the men and boys in the town and in the surrounding area. And, and so they executed 5,000 Muslim men and boys, age three up to ages in their 90s. There, was, there were rape camps that were set up for the sexual pleasure of the Bosnian Serb forces. Uh, in those rape camps, there were women as young as, as lower elementary school all the way up to middle-aged women. There were atrocities that were committed that made even the hardest of heart go, ooh, that's horrible, that's difficult. And here's the thing, as we read the reports and as we looked at, at these guys who were getting, uh, getting arrested for war crimes, not a single one of them owned their stuff. In fact, what they did is they rationalized their crime. They would say those same words that we heard at the Nuremberg war crimes trials. I was just following orders of my superiors. It was not my fault. Or those people, whether they were Muslim, Croatian, or Serbian, those people had it coming to them. You don't understand our history, that I'm doing the world a favor and I'm a patriot for my country. Not a single one took responsibility for their actions. They deceived themselves, which is what John is talking about here. When we say we don't sin, we reject God's words, making him out to be a liar. In fact, what we do is we rationalize sin. We rationalize sin. And, and none of us can, can look down on judgment on anybody else because I guarantee you and I both do it. I know I've done it a whole lot. You know, you're in your, your, uh, your, your small group and you might be assailing someone's character while you covet it or cover it with or as a prayer request. It's the guy with the wife and she's got, so they've got several kids. She's tired, the kids are tired, they've been cranky and they're all sick and he's got urges. So in the middle of the night he goes and he looks at porn and he's like, it's no big deal. I, I, I'm not really committing adultery and you know, my wife was tired, I'm doing her a favor. We rationalize our sin. And the list can go on and on from white collar crime to gluttony. You know, we can say with gluttony, I, I was always taught to clean my plate, to clear my plate. And that's why I'm in the position I am today. Sexual impurity, pride, lying. As I said, the list goes on and on. And what we do is we play the blame game. 
We blame our failures on the way we were raised or our environment or on our circumstances, on our genes, on our family. And and while those things may play a part, at the end of the day, we got to own it. And that's what John is telling us here. We have to own it. We have to take seriously God's holiness because God is light and our own sinfulness. A few years ago, there was a group called the Brothers Osborne, and they, they're a country group. They, they wrote this song called It Ain't My Fault, and it really nails what we're talking about today. Let me give you a few of the lines from the song. Blame the heart for the hurting. Blame the hurting on the heart. Blame the dark on the devil. Blame the devil on the dark. Blame the X on the drink and blame the drinking on the X. Blame the two-for-one tequilas for whatever happens next. It ain't my fault. Blame the raisin on my name, blame my, blame my raisin on my name, blame my name on my raisin. Blame my lack of knowing better on public education. Blame smoke on the fire, blame fire on the smoke. Blame the fight with, on the bouncer who couldn't take a joke. It ain't my fault. And it's true. We, we play the blame game and what God says, no, own it. We own it. We do our best to walk in the light. It's not about perfection. It's about persistence. And if we claim we have not sinned, We make God out to be a liar, that nothing in his word is true about sin. Man, this isn't fun. This is hard. But here's the thing. What's the remedy? The remedy is verse 9. Verse 9 is amazing because it is the gospel. It's bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. You know, I once heard a, a pastor, he was talking about grace. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Or your worst failures are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. So let's look at this. Let's look at verse nine, because this is the good news. If we confess our sins, underline circle that word confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us, underline circle that, forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's the beauty of the gospel. So Jesus 101, here's Jesus 101. We receive Jesus as our savior and Lord. When we do, we say basically, God, I want you to, Jesus, I want you to lead my life. I believe you died on the cross for me. I ask for forgiveness of my sins. And when we say that, and when we start walking with Jesus, what happens is God takes a list of all of our sins, past, present, and future, because he's all knowing, and he burns them up. We're justified. It's an accounting term. It means that everything's taken care of. So if everything's taken care of and we confess at the beginning, why do we need to keep confessing our sins? I'm glad you asked because it's a great question. First of all, let's talk about what it means to confess. The word confess, geek out and Greek out, is homologeo. Homologeo. What homologeo means is to agree with someone about something, to, to say the same thing as someone about something. So when we confess, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God that what we did goes against what he says we, uh, that we shouldn't do. We agree with God that it's sin. So we simply confess. We don't blame our circumstances. We don't blame our environment, our family history, our genes. We simply own it. And why do we do that? Because it's about a healthy relationship. Let me give you an example. Next week, my wife and I celebrate 32 years of marriage. Yes, she is a woman full of grace because I am a high-maintenance husband. 32 years of marriage. And so we got married back in Ansbach, Germany uh, in 1990. We were young soldiers. And at that time, had I said to Linda, hey, honey, here's the deal. 
I'm going to biff it. I'm just a guy. I'm, 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 I'm dumb and stupid and, and I often just screw up and I'm going to do that. So I just need to ask for your forgiveness for everything coming up for our, the rest of our lives together. And I doubt that she would, but she might say, okay, I agree. I forgive you. And then throughout the rest of our marriage, I never apologize when I'm stupid. That would really affect the health of the marriage. Well, it's all about fellowship. It's all about fellowship. It's all about intimacy with God. So to keep that relationship healthy, yeah, he's forgiven us for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But here's the thing. Confessing our sins to God, and I would say to someone else, we'll talk about that in a second, confessing our sins to God keeps that relationship healthy. Not for salvation. This is not a salvation issue. This is a relationship health issue. When we consistently go to God, when we biff it. And here's the beautiful thing. He is faithful and just to forgive us. There is nothing so bad or on Law and Order, SVU, one of my favorite shows, heinous crimes, any of the, the worst things, the, heinous, the most heinous thing you could do, he's still gonna forgive you if you come to him with a heart that wants to change, to be transformed, to be more like Jesus. We repent of our sin. That means we, we, it's a military term. It's, we do about, an about face from that behavior or whatever. And we move towards Jesus. We stay in the light because it's not about perfection. It's about persistence. And that's what this whole confession piece does. It's about being honest with God. Dr. Chuck Swindoll once said these words. He, he said that intimacy is rooted in honesty. Intimacy is rooted in honesty. And that's why confession is so important. We confess to God just to be honest with him and keep that relationship healthy. The beautiful thing about God is when we mess up, because we're gonna mess up, guys. All of us are. He's not sitting there with a nail-pierced hand getting ready to bash us in the head. No, he wants us to come to us immediately to keep that relationship intimate and honest. And honest. It's the beauty of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. So what does confession look like? First of all, we own it. We own it. We call it for what it is. It's sin. We don't, we don't sugarcoat it with whatever the culture, psychiatrists, or anybody else wants us to say what it is. We just own it. Secondly, we confess it. We agree with God that what we did was stupid. And then we, we, we confess it to someone else who's close to us that we can trust. And it depends on the situation who that could be. James chapter 5 encourages us, actually commands us, to confess our sins to one another. And if you read James chapter 5, read it on your own. Read James chapter 5. The context is about healing. And when it comes to confessing with someone else, there's a healing property that is so amazing because we can have emotional healing, spiritual healing, but I would argue, argue physical healing too. Because when we're living in habitual sin, what happens is we can cause a lot of stress on ourselves and that can cause health problems. So we own it. We confess it. We trust that God has removed it. Trust that he's faithful and just to remove it, to cleanse us. And, and, and so what happens then 12 hours later, 12 days later, 12 months later, 12 years later, when, when the enemy starts knocking on our door and brings up all this guilt from something you had done, God's already removed that. You rebuke the enemy and you move forward because that's from the enemy. That's not from God. He has, he has removed it. So you trust God. So you own it, confess it. You trust that God's removed it. You make amends 
with anyone you've harmed because there's no sin out there that doesn't harm someone besides yourself. And then you stand up, you dust off, and you walk in the light. It's about persistence, not perfection. It's about honesty and intimacy. We walk in the light. Tough teaching. Very difficult teaching. So what I want to do is I land this plane. I want to give you a challenge for today. And here is your challenge. Go in love, be a light. Go in love, be a light. It's, it's not only the title of our series, it's part of our DNA here at Cornwall Church. Go in love, be a light. It, it happens inwardly and outwardly. So let's talk very briefly about that. Inwardly, going in love means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Dialing into those spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting, spending time with God, intimate time with God, spending time in, in Scripture, and serving Him in some way, shape, or form. Carving out that time to love Him because He loves you so much. And then the second part is just loving others. Seeing a need in someone's life and filling that need. Seeing a person and loving them for who they are right where they are because we're all created in the image of God. It's about reflecting the light of Jesus in our lives no matter where we work, no matter who we're with and we simply love well. We go in love. We be a light. You see, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful us and forgive us our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Go in love, be a light. Walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. And when you biff it, own it. Because he is ready, willing, and able to just forgive you and love on you because he's a good, holy, wonderful God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. First of all, we thank you for the ability to do that infamous word. We're so tired of hearing it pivot <laughs> to an online service just for this weekend. We thank you for that. We thank you for your love, your grace, your kindness. We thank you that it's about the light. It's not about the darkness. It's about you, Jesus, first and foremost. And we praise you. We ask for strength. We ask for wisdom. We ask for courage to walk in the light. And when we mess up, God, because it's gonna happen, we're human. We just wanna own it and just come right back into the light because you're waiting right there for us. Give us that strength and, strength and that courage. We pray this. Jesus' holy, precious name, amen.